welcome our community pastor, Scott Bourne. It is an incredible privilege to worship with you guys. I told the worship team last night as we, after we got through praying for the service, I said, you know, most of the time when I worship with this church, I end up in tears, and I'm not the big crier type. And it's just great to be in the presence of God, and I'm just in awe of the privilege to be a part of this church and to be a part of the staff and um, uh, this, how God brought us up here. And uh, I won't go into that story again today, but uh, just, just to see God's hand and to be in the middle of, of God's stuff is a good place to be. And if you're interested in trying, you're thinking, I want to get involved with and get in the middle of God's stuff, this is a great place to get in the middle of it. And I encourage you to explore that because I'm learning more and more about this church and I just thank you for the privilege. I mean, kind of in awe of the privilege to be a part of, um, of what God is doing here in the, this church and in the Twin Cities. And, and sometimes I even think it might be a little bit like the awe, just a little bit, like the awe the people around John the Baptist, uh, when uh, they were around John the Baptist's birth. Uh, they were in awe of what... Uh, was going on with him. As we learned in Luke 1 last week, uh, John the Baptist was born in unusual circumstances. His mother was beyond childbearing years. That meant she was old. Uh, how old, we don't know, but she probably had a few wrinkles. Um, and she, she had not had children before, so he was a miracle child. And, uh, and on top of that, his announcement came not from a doctor, but from a, an angel. Now, how many of you came to, had your, an angel came to your father and said you were going to be born? You know, John, everybody, this was, they, people were in awe of what was going on with John the Baptist's birth. And when John the Baptist was born and, and his father, Zechariah, said his name will be John, his voice came back because he didn't believe the angel. So for nine months, he couldn't speak. His wife, Elizabeth, probably was thankful. Um, uh, preachers are never short on words. Uh, Zechariah was a priest. So, uh, um, so for nine months, he's voiceless. Then when he names John, he, his voice comes back. And people, are, people respond by saying, what kind of child is this? What will happen through this child? And in that context, Zechariah prophesies. The Holy Spirit comes upon Zechariah and he prophesies. It says in verse 67 of, verse, of chapter 1 of Luke, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to redeem his holy co uh, re remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. I want to camp out specifically on verse 76, where Zechariah says to his son, the baby, and I can imagine him holding the little baby, John the Baptist, and saying to him, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That is a prophetic blessing that a father spoke over his son. And while he could not understand the words, no, that is the foundation upon which John the Baptist lived and ministered. A prophetic blessing from a, from a father, that is life-shaping. It creates one's identity. It creates a sense of who a person is. And John the Baptist, because his father had spoken over him this blessing, grew up on a solid foundation to live his life. We live in a society today that is fatherless. Statistics tell us that fathers spend less than five minutes per week per child with the actual children, his actual children. We are a blessed-less society. We don't understand what it means to walk in this kind of blessing. And let me say, we need, if there's any time in the history of the church, any time in the history of the world that we need a blessing, it is today. Those five little girls in Haiti were blessed less. Now they are blessed because they have people speaking into their lives. And we need that same blessing spoken over into our lives. And this morning I want to pray that we will receive, begin to receive a new kind of blessing that we might walk in something different. So I just want you to imagine yourself receiving from the Lord. And if you want to put yourself in a posture of receiving, that's, that's okay. But I want to pray that the Lord will speak into our hearts this morning that we might receive His words into our heart. So just let's pray right now. Father, You are the one who speaks blessings into our lives, that sets us on a solid rock and a solid foundation. And I pray this morning that you would speak into our hearts, that you would prophetically announce your blessing that would change us from the inside out so that we won't have to live from the outside in any longer, but that we might look, and look inside of ourselves and say, wow, wow, the words of God resound within me. Let us say that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. About 18 months ago, I was going through some uh, angst if you will. I was going through some struggles. I was trying to figure some stuff out in my life. Wasn't exactly liking what was going on. And in that context, uh, I, I was given uh, some words of edification, some words of direction. And they sounded something like this. Your blessing will come when you learn to be who you are. And I was like, okay whatever you know you kind of know when the lord starts speaking to you when you kind of go i wasn't thinking about that and what in the world does that mean and i was like that i was like well that didn't, didn't see it that way and i don't really know what that means so it kind of sent me on this journey of asking the question who am i and you might have done this you may have been sitting at a bus stop or a park bench or standing in front of a mirror thinking who am i anyway who, who is this person that's standing in front of this mirror or sitting here reflecting on his life? 
And most of the time, we come up with a couple of uh, responses to this. Most of us either respond with, I don't know. And those of us who do know will respond with something like, I don't like what I know. If you're real, we're really honest, we're like, how do we define ourselves and who are we? We're like, I don't really know how to answer that question. Or if we do try to answer it, we're kind of like, wow, not sure I want to proclaim this to anyone. So we go on this search to try to figure out who I am. Now, I've gone on this search and looked at different places. One of the places I've looked is some stuff that often comes in the self-help section of the bookstore. The personality, personality types will tell us a little bit about who we are. And, uh, you know, different ones of us have different personalities. There are some people in this room who have a personality that will gladly spend 30 minutes on the telephone with a wrong number. You know who you are. You just like to talk. And the more you, you walk into a party and you see 45 people there and you go, an audience? Oh, my goodness. And like, here's a person over here you can talk to for two seconds and go over here. Those people are, they go into a room and everybody's glad they're there and the light shines and it's fun and laughter and all that kind of stuff. But not everybody's like that. There are some people here today who are perfectionists. You open their closet and every hanger is exactly an inch and a half apart. And every hanger matches. They're all white plastic ones. You know, you, you can't have the regular uh, wire ones because they're not your kind of hangers. I've seen some people that are like this that have to go buy the wooden ones and put all their clothes on the wooden ones. Because they're, they're, everything's got to be in a certain way, in a certain order. and They even put their forks in the same little, in, in the, I don't, I don't understand this, but you, you, the, the dishwasher and there's like the, you can't mix up the forks and spoons and knives because all the forks have to go in the same thing together. And I'm like, why? It's the same water. But, you know. And then there are those people who are, are drivers. They they like to get stuff done, they're impatient, they're, they know where they want to go, they're goal setters, and come on people, let's go, charge! They can be a little insensitive, because they got goals to accomplish. And then there are those people in the room who like to be behind the scenes, consistent, day in, day out, the faithful ones who actually get stuff done, because everybody else is talking, or organizing their hangers, or setting goals. Uh, but there are those people in the room who, who really like consistency, and I, I don't understand that. I'm not that kind of person, and um, uh, yes, I've had to. My dad is like that, and you know, he's, he was a fireman for 29 years, you know, 32 years, and I'm like, you know, you sit there and wait for an emergency for three days. You have to be this kind of consistent person to wait that long. And that, was my, that is my father. But, you know, in personality types, yes, that helps us understand some things about ourselves, but is that who I am? I hope I'm much more than my personality because there are days when my personality is not too great. I hope there's much more to me than that. So other times I, I found myself to, trying to define myself according to my success. How successful is Scott Boren? Well, go jobless for a little while and see how you feel about your success. 
I did that, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, but there, we get into that kind of thing, oh, do I have a little letters behind my name with dots after the letters, PhD or MD or whatever you might have, or you do it, we do it according to our jobs. I'm an accountant, or I'm a, a doctor, or I'm a carpenter, or I'm a businessman, or, or we even do it according to our, our roles of I'm a successful mother, or I'm a successful father. We, we, we do this, and, um, but what happens when we're not successful? Is that what we're going to define, how we're going to define ourselves, according to our level of success? Romans 12, 3 says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. There are some of us in, that struggle with this. I'm not saying that I do, but I do. Uh, and we probably all at one time or another have struggled with thinking of myself as too highly than I should. And I get over here in this world of I'm too important and then there are others of us who think too lowly of ourselves. And we go, oh, woe is me, I'm not worth, worth this job position or this promotion or this raise or the good situation I have in my life. And as I was thinking about being too, thinking too highly of myself or thinking too lowly of myself, I began to realize that the problem is for, in both situations is rooted in the same thing. The problem is that in both situations, I'm always comparing myself to someone else. And so on this side of the equation, when I compare myself to someone else, and I think, well, I've got more education than they do, what does that lead to? Vanity. Or I make more money than they do. Vanity. Like I deserve it. Or I drive a nicer car, or I have a better job, or, or this, or that, or the other, and I'm comparing myself to other people. But then I go through a difficult time and I, I, I come over here to this lowly side and oh, woe is me. And again, I'm comparing myself to other people who are not going through what I'm going through. Or I meet someone who is quote unquote successful or famous or rich or lives in a huge house or drives a nicer car than I do. And I'll make, you know, I've heard statements saying like this, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I be like that person? And I think, woe is me, and I look at myself as lowly, lowly, lowly. And again, I'm, I'm comparing myself to other people because the problem goes much deeper than just my comparison to other people. It goes to the issue of I'm analyzing myself. I'm looking at myself to define myself. I, I, you know, this is what the world teaches us. I mean, it's been taught in, throughout the history of the world for a long, long time, even before Christ. Uh, Socrates told people to know thyself, which is the key to all wisdom. To know thyself. Look inside yourself to figure out yourself. Who you are will be defined by this introspection. And it ends up that we are living our lives and analyzing ourselves into a four-sided fence that ends up being very small. Imagine yourself surrounded by four fences, chain-link fences that just, side you, just pin you in, and you are a fenced-in self. This fenced-in self it has an individualism, individualistic focus. The center of the world is me. 
I am the king of the universe or I am the worm of the universe, whichever side you fall on. You are the fenced-in self that must be the center of all conversations or, you know, you're the center of your story, the main character of the story. And you're searching and looking within yourself to find the story of your life and you find this, you're try, we're trying to search for this story in the now. We live, we are a people of the now more than any other generation in the history of mankind. We're more worried about today than anything. Everything is about today. I've got to have it today. If I don't get it today, I'm upset. I'm frustrated. And if I'm frustrated today, I'm going to be frustrated for the rest of my life. If I'm happy today, I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. We live in the now, and the now determines everything. When I was a kid, I grew up in Dallas, and I grew up a Dallas Cowboys fan. One of the highlights of my Dallas Cowboy memories is Tony Dorsett running for 99 and a half yards against the Minnesota Vikings on a Monday night football game. I remember the run. There were even, Dallas Cowboys even only had, they only had 10 players on the field when they did that. It wasn't even supposed to be handed to Tony Dorsett, but, you know, Cowboys lost that game. I hate to say that, but the uh, Minnesota Vikings actually won. But um, uh, I remember this feeling about the Cowboys, and this feeling is how often we live our lives in the now, is I would sit about three feet away from the television set, curled up in front of it in a chair, biting my fingernails for three hours, worried about whether or not they were going to win, and if they won, it was as if they'd won the Super Bowl. And if they lost, I'd be depressed for two days. Because winning meant everything. Winning today, not winning tomorrow, winning today meant everything. And, and losing meant they were just worthless. And to hear the media, would have, they would have backed that up. Uh, you know, and we, we have this, not only a me focused, it's a now focus where everything has to be in order and we're, we, it ends up in sometimes depression and hopelessness because we think, you know, I've got this problem and this is who I am and, well, I'm kind of stuck here because this is just what reality is and I've got to learn to live with it. I can't change. Well, there must be an alternative answer. There must be something different out there. John's father spoke into his life. He said a blessing, a prophetic blessing over him. A prophetic blessing that, that established who John was. And John did incredible things in his life and worked incredible miracles and, and, and led many people into the kingdom as a forerunner to Jesus. And this blessing wasn't just, they weren't just words of nicety. You know, a lot of times when I'm in my fence, people have tried to be nice to me and speak blessing into my life, and it's just, they're empty words. They're kind of like, well, you're a good person. Well, what does that mean? Or I really like you, Scott, and everything's going to be okay. Well, what does that mean? There's got to be something concrete that comes from a prophetic word of God that establishes a foundation upon which I live, and that's what Zechariah did for, for John. It established him, and this establishment came out of a long history of the works of God from the Old Testament. I say this because in this song that I read this morning, there are over 35 references to the Old Testament. In, that one, in those short verses, the, the short little reading I, said, I had, 
I read this morning, there were over 35 references to the Jewish scriptures. Now, you might look at your, your Bible and say, well, there are no quotation marks. How can you say that? There are no little notes at the bottom that says Isaiah 5, 16, or referring back to Exodus or whatever. No, there aren't big quotes, but there are words or phrases that act as triggers. There are words and phrases within the scripture that and when people would hear a, this word or phrase, they wouldn't just hear the word or phrase, it would open up a world to them. It would open up a story and a picture from the past. And when they would hear that word, it was like a tape recorder would go off in their brains, a VCR would go off in their brains, or a DVD now, and they would replay the images of those stories, and they would relive them. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, in verse 68, it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. When people of the early church heard this verse, they weren't just thinking about today, and they weren't just thinking about me. They were thinking about the Exodus. Because God coming to his people and redeeming them, those were key phrases that would trigger thoughts about Moses going to Egypt and leading the people out of slavery. And they would actually re-experience the Exodus. In fact, even, mo in, even in modern Judaism, they, they teach people to read the Bible this way, or the Old Testament this way, where you're reliving, you're participating in the Exodus. Not the people of yesterday are in the Exodus, but you are actually in that Exodus. It's your Exodus. In verse 68, there's another trigger into the past, a, word, a couple of words that trigger the past. It says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. When people would hear that, they wouldn't just think about David the king. They'd think about who David the king was and what he did and how he reigned with authority and how he established a house of worship that brought in the presence of God into Jerusalem. And the people of the first century longed for that because Jerusalem was no longer a place of the presence of God. So when they would hear this, it would trigger all of these visions and memories and stories. Stories define who we are. Zechariah realized this and knew that it was required for the blessing that would go in, be spoken into John's life. Let me illustrate how this works. When you hear these words, four score and seven years ago, what do you think? Thank you very much. Immediately you go to Abraham Lincoln. No, they're not just words. They recap a story. Immediately you go to this man who was president, and he's speaking at Gettysburg during the Civil War, during this great tragedy of our country. It recaps not just words, but a whole story for us. And a more recent image are the four words, I have a dream. Immediately what comes to your mind Martin Luther King Jr. For some of you in this room, this means a lot because this has shaped who you are. You live through this and you're part of that cult, the culture with Abraham Lincoln, I mean, with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And you're coming out of that struggle. You know, you, you, you've, your family had longed for the freedom that he spoke of. Or your, your, your people in this room who have ancestors 
who, who lived through this and, and connected with Rosa Parks. And it has helped shape and create who you are. It helped, it, this, this one speech wasn't just about a speech. It was about a whole story of what our country went through in the 60s. It has shaped who we are today. These stories shape us. Now, if you're not from America, you might not connect with this. Let me give you an example. There was a friend of mine who was from Australia who came to study in America, and he was sitting in a class, and the professor said four score and seven years ago. He's like, huh? Well, he said it with an Australian accent. I don't know what that is, but, you know. Uh, He's like, in Texas, we'd say, huh? Um, And we're like, he he didn't understand what that meant. So he asked a few of his friends after class, what happened 87 years ago? Because score means 20, so four scores is 80. I had to look that up. Um, And they're like, 87 years ago, 87 years ago, what happened? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Ricky. And he he said, well, Four score and seven years ago. Oh, four score and seven years. Oh, that's 87? I didn't know that was 87. But four score and seven years ago is referring to Abraham Lincoln's speech. He's like, well, who's Abraham Lincoln? I mean, he's not from here, so he doesn't hold those stories as his. And sometimes we come to the New Testament and we're, we're, we're reading things and we're not sure how they fit. It's like, it's like watch, uh, turning on the television and pick, turning to a channel where there's an episode of Murder, She Wrote, and you only catch the last 20 minutes. You know, she solves the mystery for you, but you, it doesn't make any sense. You don't know who killed who, or what happened, or who, how all these people are connected. And many times, that's the way we come to the New Testament, thinking, well, I understand what this means, but you've only caught the last 20 minutes of the history of God. And we miss out on the nuances and the the depth of the riches of this covenant-keeping God who is merciful over and over and over as he creates the people of God. We look for stories to define us, to tell us who we are. We look for stories to to make it okay for for us to be who we are. In fact, many times I've gone on the search to find someone else who is like me to tell me that I'm okay. And I'll read a biography and go, well, do I have anything in common with that person? I'm like, well, not really, but I can learn a few things. And I'd find someone else. I'm like, I'm more like that person. And I was like, am I on the same track as they were? And is that okay to think the way I do? And I've learned something that uh, has kind of been revolutionary in that I'm unique. And you are too. And you're so beautifully unique, God didn't replicate you. Even identical twins are different. And we're on our journeys with the Lord, and He doesn't want us to be like anyone else. He wants us to seek after His heart and understand how we fit in the story and not try to say, oh, i got to be like this person to be okay and be validated. We fit into this story and we learn our validation. So we don't need to look for some model to validate us we need to hear the story. What is our story? In Romans 11, verse 17, Paul writes, you, he's speaking to us, non-Jews, I'm sure there are a few Jewish descent here today, uh, but I'm, I'm not, and I, I, this is spoken to me. 
It says, you who are non-Jews, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Now, an olive tree means something to people who live in in the area of Israel and in the area of Italy, Rome, uh, because olive trees are there, not here. And uh, olive trees live for a long, long time, over 100 years. And they produce fruit for a long, long time during their whole life. And for the, what Paul is saying here is, this olive tree of Israel has been around a long, long time, and you haven't. And God is grafting you into what he's been doing for a long, long time. It's not new. It's not now. And it's not about you. It's about the history of what God is doing. So in order to understand what God is doing in me, and to define who I am, I need to do two things. I need to open two gates from this fence that surrounds me. The first gate is this, the gate of participating in my heritage. I need to become a person rooted in the history of God because the Old Testament is my testament. The New Testament is too. And maybe the word old is, is really not the best word. Maybe it should be called the First Testament. Because the New Testament is grafted into the Old Testament. And it flows out of the Old Testament. It is the completion of the Old Testament. And without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make much sense. It is the story of the faithful, covenant-keeping God of Israel that is our God. And we need to hear those stories. I need to hear these stories. Because as I hear these stories, I get grounded in who I am. As I hear these stories, I get my eyes off of me and onto the active, merciful God who comes for me. And I, by not looking at me, I discover who I am. Kind of weird. Kind of backward. By not focusing on me, I discover how God made me. By focusing on what God has done and how this story, this grand story that goes way back to Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets, I discover that I'm part of a big, huge story of the covenant-keeping God. I was sitting in my living room about 2 o'clock a few nights ago meditating on this, and I started laughing at myself because freedom came over me because I realized because I'm not living in the now with this revelation because I'm not stuck in the now I don't have to be successful I don't have to be all that and be doing this and that and make sure everything is perfect in my life I don't have to have that pressure because this story is so big it's not about me I'm just a little narrow strip of it but the awesome thing about the merciful and loving God is that he loves this little bitty person enough in this big history to include me in his story that's incredible that's overwhelming and it just set me free it set me free Our father Abraham, who is the father of nations. One of the things that we do in this world is to compare ourselves to others, and we often do this according to race. We say, I'm this, I'm white, I'm black, or 
I'm this and I'm not you and you don't understand me and I don't understand you. And, and you know, let me just say this up front. I don't understand other races because I'm not other races. I can't understand what African-American people went through in the 60s. I can't. I can't understand what you go through now. But Abraham said he'd be the fa- God said you'd be the father of many nations. And that word, father of many nations, is saying, this word for nations is, is the same word used and translated for Gentiles. Be the father of Gentiles. But Abraham's Jewish. No, he's saying you'll be the father of the faithful. Father of those who follow God. And when we do this, we become one. And this is the radical thing about the, the kingdom of God is that people who don't look like me become one with me. And I become one with you. And we be, actually become brothers and sisters. That's wild and crazy that no one else in the world can do. Because it's only by the Spirit of God that I can say to, an, to a Chinese person who, uh, whom I don't understand because they think so differently that, and we think so differently that I can say to that person, I love you and I really do. And if you speak against that person, you speak against me. Amen. And if and it's by the Spirit of God and by the unity of the Spirit of God, somehow it impacts me. Amen. I don't understand how. Because it doesn't make sense. But that's the spirit of God. It's not by my will. It's by what the spirit is doing as he unifies his church. And then the miracle happens. When we open the gate to the past, we can open the gate to the future and hope comes. It's only as we're grounded in the reality of the God of the past that we can open this side of the gate and say, I have a future and I'm not stuck in yesterday. I'm not stuck in who I am today. I have more than what I am. There is a God who is, who is bigger than me and my problems and my depression or my this or my that. He can set me free and I don't have to stay in this. Even though I feel like this today, Satan, I can be free tomorrow. Because my God is alive and at work and I don't have to live in today. I don't have to be stuck in what my feelings are today. There is a future and a hope for us in the tomorrow. The enemy wants to tell you, that this four-sided fence is all you have, that you're stuck and you must live in it. But this, according to this scripture, he is the merciful God who shines on those living in the darkness. And the more we look at ourselves and the more we get introverted, this four-sided fence will lead to darkness and self-analyzation. But there is a past of God who has set people free for generations and generations, and this is your God and this is my God who is setting us free for a future and a hope that he has for you. And if you want that this morning and you need that this morning, there will be prayer counselors here at the front who will gladly pray for you. If you're saying this morning, I want to participate in this for the first time, I've never really done this God thing, there will be someone over here at this table uh, who will be glad to chat with you and provide some literature with you and pray with you. Let's pray right now. Let's pray right now that the the Spirit of God will do this in our lives, giving us a new future and a new hope as we ground ourselves in the stories of this God who has worked faithfully in the people, his people. God, we just welcome you to open our lives to what you've done. Ground us in your word, O God, that we might be a people of the word, truly, not just saying that that we might live into these stories and they become our stories, that we might have a new future and a new hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go in the peace of God.